join us each week as Andrew, Ray, and others bring us in on one of their weekly phone conversations with an amazing agent. This is Little Oak Weekly. Well, now now we're live. Here we go. Begin. Sweet. All right. So I guess uh, the new year. The new year. Yes. Happy New Year, 2022. I'm I've uh, I'm still playing this out like we're in the new year. I'm sipping a um, uh, a bamboo rum right now as we're doing you started this. Started early. Oh, it's so, the good stuff too. Yeah, I like bamboo. I actually was I was told. I had some people over at the house a few days ago, and someone told me that bamboo actually isn't real rum. Who cares? I know they're they're <laughs> they're dead to me. I I but I've been I've been telling people that is it not real rum because there's stuff added to it, or is it actually not a rum alcohol? It's they say it's not okay. So a true rum, I think, has to be over forty percent. Is my understanding alcohol? Oh, okay. And there's additives in the bamboo to give it the amazing flavor that it has. And so apparently that disqualifies it. I looked it up after this person ruined my night uh, and, I was, <laughs> and I was doubting what they were saying. I looked it up and apparently this is in fact true that bamboo is, um, I think it's categorized, I want to say like as a liqueur or something like that. What about their um, black bottle version? Is that... A b- no, that rum? is rum, hundred percent. Okay, but that right. one tastes like piss in comparison yeah, to uh, the clear bottle's the best. In, yeah, totally. The, the clear, I think, is actually the original. And, really? Yeah, yeah. And then, and I think the black was made was made afterwards. Look at that! I just pulled you up on. Uh, I wasn't looking you at at you on Zoom, and now I'm staring at you. So there you yeah, go. we switched we switched this method up. Normally, Andrew's calling somebody on the phone. This this uh, edition, we're we're doing it in uh, Zoom face to face. With, uh, with the topic of business planning for 2022, we obviously attempted to do it mostly in November. That didn't really happen, so we pushed it into December. We did a bunch of business planning. Andrew did a ton of training. We've done a bunch of videos. And then we reached out to our agents and said, what did we miss? What do we need to clear up? Yeah, what, did, what, were, we we, what were we confusing on? What didn't make any sense? Yeah, it was, it was supposed to be a two-day process there was a whole lot more into it that got shifted around yeah there was a lot of water that impacted the planning (laughs) yeah so yeah originally we were going to have two part the second part was going to be the practical application where people were supposed to walk away you know those are the people who attended live were going to be able to like physically do a lot of their stuff in that moment with you know assistance and then things got screwed up. And so I actually, uh, the sneak peek that I've had at the questions that have come in, a lot of them actually are related to what I would say is the practical application side of things. So this makes perfect sure. sense. People, the theory was taught, you know, we talked through the theory and now they're going to cave it like, what, what does this physically look like? And so hopefully we, um, we are able to, to address some of that today. Yeah. So we're going to go through a bunch of questions and conversations around, you know, what, what business planning is and how that looks a little bit more in depth. And uh, I'm going to just jump straight into it. I think one of the easiest, most common ones that people came up with, which would have been covered in part two, is what does a finished plan look like? What is, what is that to you? What's a finished business plan? This is a good, good question. And it's funny, I didn't, um, I didn't, I've thought of this before, but I actually, in all of this time we've been going through this in the last month, I didn't think of this maybe because I've done it so many times, but it's a, it's a great question. Um, and I think it's really valuable to actually finish with a physical product that, you know, in some cases you can sign, you can have other people sign, you can share it with other people. So what, and I, I don't think there's one way to do this, but what I have done myself and what I think is cool is 
you end up with a document that's maybe, it could be a page, it could be a few pages long. And, you know, if you remember the, the, the steps that we've gone through of, um, you know, reflect, dream and imagine, build, implement, manage, I might have just mixed up the order and not use the identical words, but I think by now everybody gets what I'm talking about. You, when you do that, you, I mean, for me anyway, you end up writing some things down and you actually do some physical work. And so my document uh, that I produce each year, the first thing it has on it, other than a title and stuff like that, is it'll have some thoughts uh, that's part of the reflection process that are, you know, based upon the previous year. And those thoughts can be positive or negative. They can be things that I hated or liked or did well or whatever. And that's kind of just as a reminder that the real value in that is when I've looked back on plans, either six months down the road, a year later, sometimes many years later, I I regularly reflect on a lot of my stuff. Like I really enjoy going through stuff from 2004, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, you know, just seeing the, the changes over time. But I write those things down so that years later, when I look back on it, it's a cool reminder to see the mental space that you were in and the things that, you know, were on your mind in that moment. So that's why I include those. And then uh, from there, it gets into, you know, the dreaming aspect, um, the things that you want to accomplish. And so, you know, again, talking specifically about a business plan, I understand in the topic of goal setting, you know, you might have things that are more lifestyle focused, and you can certainly create a plan that is all encompassing. That is you know, lifestyle and business focused. And I've done that too. But if we're talking specifically about just the business planning side of things, then I'll just contain this to the business goals, right? And so we'd be talking about physically, or practically speaking, what is it that you want to accomplish? And you break that down into, you know, whether that's home sold or revenue, uh, revenue streams or revenue numbers or both. Maybe there's some habits in there that you wanted to be able to incorporate in form. And so again, this is just point form stuff, right? And then uh, definitely you get specifically into, you know, at some point you have to decide, well, what are going to be the revenue streams that, you know, you're building into your plan. And so for me, that's always been a minimum of three and usually four, sometimes five. And then you just like, like literally just write it out. Okay. A revenue stream is, you know, database is one that I consider to be a non-negotiable. And then you know, for database, it's not writing down every single thing you do, but it might be something like this database as the headline. And then maybe I've decided that my database is going to get uh, 14 touches throughout the year. And maybe those touches break down in two primary categories. Maybe uh, those touches, four of them are physical, eight of them are electronic. And then that's it. I wouldn't get more, too much more detailed than that, just because this is just the, the end document plan. There's obviously in the implementation strategy, you're going to be far more detailed and you can be detailed if you want. If you want to have a longer document, you can certainly do it. But um, I would stay point form on each of the revenue streams, just the basic activities that are required in each stream. And then uh, and then I would also write, you know, after you've done that, I, I kind of like to go in in point form. I, I'll list a few key things uh, and it'll, it'll be like this. It'll be like the um, activities or or mindsets that are going to lead me to success. And then I'd also even list things that are likely to cause failure. That, to, again, this isn't like scientific. I'm sure there's other ways you can do this. It's just something that I've done over time. And it's just really valuable for me to remind myself in the plan 
the things that are going to help me and the things that are going to hurt me. I imagine as you get further into doing these two, the things that are going to hurt you becomes a, a more in-depth list where you've realized, oh, that didn't work. I need to add this now to as something to avoid or, or do differently. Yeah. So like one of the things that I've written down <laughs> as things that are going to hurt me is wavering from the plan. You know, like it's so easy to get into March, April, May or whatever. And like, you know, you encounter ideas or concepts or like somebody says like, oh, here's a new CRM or here's a new marketing strategy or someone you're watching who's doing amazing is doing something and it becomes really tempting to emulate them. And a discipline that I've gotten into is as I encounter a new idea throughout the year, if I like it, it gets put on the back burner and I put a reminder in to review this in November when I'm doing my business planning for the following year, no matter how good the idea is or, you know, because everything is always an emergency. It's always incredible. You always got to do it right now because it's the latest and greatest. In my opinion, nothing is done well when it's reactionary. Everything can be done well when it's planned out with purpose and thought. And so um, that's one of one of my threats or, you know, things that can derail me is if I don't stick to my plan for the entire year. So when you're done and you've got sort of your idea set up then for the coming year, is this like a PDF that you just keep somewhere handy? Do you review it through the year? Do you ever change it? Yeah. So, I mean, if I said I'd change it, then I guess that would contradict what I just said a minute ago. <laughs> I mean, okay. So have I changed? Okay. There's a few questions. Yes, sir. I don't want to miss each yeah. one. So, so first of all, have I ever changed it? The answer is yes. And the answer is yes, I can think of two times I've changed it. So number one, I remember I changed my plan a few months in because the market, actually twice I did this. One of the times, I won't remember the exact year, but I want to say it was like 2010 or 11. The market had gone to shit. And I realized that like I had set, total, and for me, I'd set totally unrealistic goals based on what was happening in the market. And what was happening is after the first few months, I was beating myself up and it was all negative headspace because I was never going to accomplish what I had set. Like it just was not going to happen. So rather than beat the piss out of myself for the remaining nine months of the year, I readjusted my goals based on what I think was attainable in the marketplace. And some people, I'm sure some people would look at that and say, that's failure or that's, you know, giving up or whatever. But I think I know myself well enough to know that beating the hell out of myself for 12 months wouldn't have been good. And I, I just readjusted based on the environment. And that really meant that I went from, I think at the time, uh, that year I was trying to sell 60, I think I was trying to do 60 transactions. It might've been 50 something. It was 50 something or 60 transactions, which was attainable. And I had done in years gone by, but there was no way I was going to get it done that year. And I think I readjusted down to like 42 or 44 or something like that. I, I think that I actually didn't even meet that goal. Like it was a tough market at that time. So I, I made that change. And then there was another year where I readjusted, like I remember in 2015 or 16, as the market was taking off, it was probably 15. I readjusted and increased my goals in that year because I got a few months in, I looked at the environment and what was happening. I'm like, holy cow, this is opportunity knocks. And I, I yeah, I increased everything uh, and, and shifted my activities too, because I saw greater opportunity in the neighborhood I was farming, greater opportunity in the database business. So yeah, I, I would adjust. I've done it a couple of times. Okay. So in those two, you talked about changing activities and also changing goals. Do you find that there's any concern with, you know, shifting the goals makes sense because you don't want to get to the end of the year. Well, I'm actually curious, maybe if you don't shift the goals, you get to the end of the year and you way missed it. 
Is that something you can then use for the next year instead of beating the shit out of yourself? You just go, okay, I need to adjust. Or is it like, is your goal to get to the end of the year and you want to meet what you set in the business plan? Is there a fear of it being too high or too low off of what you had set? Well, this, this gets into the conversation. I think we're going to hit this on another topic, but the difference between measuring outcome versus measuring activity. So, and, and I think that this is a nuanced conversation and there's room for both. And I don't only measure either one of them. And if I had to pick one, I actually rather measure the activity than the outcome. But, but we live, you know, we live and operate in an environment where like, whether we want to admit it or not, you know, our outcomes, while they are dictated by our activities, they're also dictated by the marketplace, right? Like we can't sure. control if there's going to be 3,000 sales this month in the Fraser Valley Real Estate Board versus 1,100. And if there's 1,100, I don't care who you are, your outcome's changing. So I make adjustments of my expected outcomes based on drastic changes in the marketplace, in the environment, which I have no control over. Right. I would not, I would be very, very, very reluctant to change anything having to do with my revenue streams or, my, or the chosen activities of my revenue streams, no matter what's going on in the environment. My, I might change my expectation for outcome because the market has either tanked or drastically gotten better, but it's going to be like, I, I can't think of a time actually that I've made a change and all that I've observed in my years of doing this amongst agents who are making changes mid-year is that these aren't I don't want to say never, but oftentimes they're not well thought out and they're reactionary to something else that's going on. And I don't think that's good practice. That's what I was going to ask too, is if it wasn't related to the market, wouldn't there be a risk of either trying to make yourself feel better or just being unrealistic into, you know, if, if an agent chose to be not lazy, but just not really follow the rest of the plan and then adjust the goals because it wasn't lining up properly, but it wasn't because of a market change. Do you kind of toss the whole purpose of that business plan if you're being a little bit unrealistic and tailoring your goals to where you actually are right now midway through the year. Yeah, and there's another option here too that we is worth mentioning is that you know, we're assuming that every business plan is done perfectly and that it's good and realistic. And I sure. mean, the way I teach this and have laid this out, there's a lot of effort put into not ha ending up with a business plan that isn't good or realistic. But I think that sometimes, I think Christy Rutherford and I discussed this in our, um, in our podcast where, you know, there's this temptation to just be as good as the next person, right? And, and always achieve more. And I do think that, you know, most people I've met, the, the, the default is to tell ourselves that we're going to do more than we're capable of. Very rarely do you meet someone who's setting, you know, low goals, Oftentimes, though, you meet someone where it's like they've sold 18 homes in a year and their goal for next year is to sell 36. Well, doubling, while I know it's not impossible, I understand it's happened, that story is one out of a thousand. Most stories are an increase by 25%, maybe 50% of the business you've done the year before. And so that is how I tell people to, you know, if you want to do more, Base it upon something like that, a 25 to 50% increase, which is still significant. If you sold 20 homes to go to 30, that is 
The workload, the difference between 20 and 30 is significant. That creates a lot of extra stresses and anxieties in your life both from a time management and an administrative perspective. And there's just new challenges you encounter going from 20 to 30. So to me, that's a really significant gain. I would suggest that if you were to talk to somebody who's done the 100% increase successfully, so you know, let's say it's a 20 to 40 conversation or a 30 to 60, while they've done it, Clearly, they've done it. There's examples of it. If you were to have an honest conversation with them, my bet would be that that conversation would be an admission that there was a lot of chaos in that environment. It was unmanageable at times. And while there was a lot of money that was made, it was an extremely stressful year. I can say 100% of the conversations that, I, that I've had with people who've done that, that's what they say. And then the following year tends to be either a retraction or it's a ongoing process of learning how to sustain that kind of volume because that is just obscene growth. And when you grow, sometimes there's unnatural growth created by markets, right? And we've been through this, right? There's a lot of people that have sold way more homes than they're used to selling or ever built systems for. So it's, well, I call it unnatural growth because the systems around it have not grown in proportion to the volume of sales. And you need to figure out how to grow all of your support systems around that if that's going to be sustainable and not kill you. And then, so again, just the last part around the finished plan, you did sort of mention it, but are you, is it, are you purposefully reviewing it through the year or is that just by chance or do you set time to go through it? Definitely. So I would, I mean, I want to say quarterly. Um, It doesn't have to be exactly quarterly. I mean, and I would even say it could be more than that. So you know, our, our markets or our, our, our business tends to be a bit seasonal. So I think a review at the end of March can sometimes be a bit early because by the end of March, things might still just kind of be taking off. And then you might have some indicators that aren't necessarily true yet. So I would want to say probably more like end of April and then end of June. And then, you know, what you do for the remainder, I, I would... I definitely think then you want to have a review at the end of summer. And then your next review is basically your last review, setting yourself up for the following year. And you know, that review to me would probably be end of October, because by the time you get to the end of October, I mean, yeah, there's a little bit of business happening still for the remainder of the year. But now by the end of October, I'm starting to gear up. I'm predominantly thinking about the following year and getting, and then by, you know, in November, I'm planning for the following year. And is that previous year's business plan playing a part in the, the next year's business plan? Hundred percent. So you know, you're by that time, you know, you've you've learned a lot of lessons, right? Like you, you've probably, you've learned a lot of lessons already by the end of June. It's just that the only reason June, you know, you I tend to just the way I do a year is you know you get into summer and you kind of take the foot off the gas and you take a bit of a mental break throughout summer and then there's this one last push in fall. And so anything that has maybe not quite gone the way I wanted it to, or, or, you know, I'm still working on, then there's this last kind of gasp, September and October, and maybe part of November to kind of flush out and see what happens. I would also say too, like for some activities and depending on where you are in, in terms of how long you've been doing something, it's way too early to judge something in spring or summer. Like you have to give it almost an entire year to truly measure it. And so we get into this when we discuss like neighborhood marketing. Like 
I can tell you, if you start a na- farming a neighborhood in January, I wouldn't be analyzing anything in that neighborhood in the first year until the absolute earliest six months, so June or July. So I would throw out the quarterly thing there. I would just tell myself, I don't give a rip. I'm not looking at results. I'm doing this. And then I want to have a measure. I want to see what's happened by June. And maybe in June, I haven't made a sale, but I want to measure things like the volume of calls I'm getting, how many appointments I've set up, what those appointments have been like. Are, the, is that, are those appointments like good clients that I would consider to be like, you know, A type clients or are they C type clients versus if you're, if you're incorporating some type of a social media strategy and you're doing any kind of like, you know, paid advertising or, you know, promoting any kind of videos or whatever, I think you can review that sooner because you can start to measure things like, you know, whatever you're asking people to do in those videos, whether they're filling out a form or clicking to another website or, or whatever, you can start to see those results instantaneously, more instantly than, than in a neighborhood. And then of course, you know, if you're, you know, if we're in a world where you're able to do open houses, that too can be measured more quickly than, than another revenue stream. So uh, I would say there's some variables there, but you know, don't, don't be, if you've incorporated a new stream, don't be getting 90 days in and going, oh, I'm not getting anything from it. That, that's like the number one mistake that people make, right? They don't have enough staying power or longevity in something and you give it up before you've even given it a chance to get results. So a couple of things you said uh, we're going to bring up later because they actually, we can reference them a little bit later, but one of the other really popular questions was, and you did mention one, but I don't actually know, I guess top three, because you said you should always have three, but the top three revenue streams everyone should use. Do you, you did mention that you have one specifically, but where we talked about this in the training we did in Surrey, you actually had a big thing on the, sh- the screen and we talked about different revenue streams, but is there one that you would say is more important than the rest? And then from there, how, what's the recommendation for how somebody determines the rest of their revenue streams they should focus on for the year? So I, everybody like, so I'll say this, I mean, everyone's heard me say this, but the one that you've absolutely got to have, in my opinion, is a plan in place for your database. And a database can be a list, if you're a brand new agent, it can be a list of your 20 closest people in your life. doesn't matter that you've never practiced real estate. It's your mom, your dad, your brothers, your cousins, your best friends, your old employer, whatever. You know, somebody you hang out with at your old job, like, that's it. That's a database. I know data, you know, I think sometimes I get that from newer people. They, they have a hard time conceptualizing it. They think a database needs to be a list of 250 people because you've been in the business for 10 years, but not true at all. So, and then if you've been around longer, then obviously your database is a list of people who've, you know, the, to use the Buffini terminology, they know, love, and trust you. They've proven in the past that they're either willing to work with you or have referred business to you. So you got to have a plan in place for that. And I, people have heard me rail on about that. That's the non-negotiable, uh, in my opinion. But then, sorry, what was the second part of your question about the other ones? You want three or you recommend three. So what's the process do you think for some, obviously are there some that you recommend, but then also what's the process you think people should use for trying to determine what those extra two revenue streams are they should be looking at? Yeah. So to me, that would be a competition or a, a, um, a conversation of comfort and competence. So if we had a list of 12 different streams in front of somebody, if 
you need to see a list, you can go to our recorded business planning training uh, to see it. Um, but it can range from, you know, as mentioned, neighborhoods, um, social media, business associations. I mean, they're the open houses. There's, there's a ton of different things you can do. I would say, ideally, it's the one or two or three that jump out to you because they, they're appealing to you. Like that to me, would, I'd go like, those are your three if, if something jumps out at you. I understand sometimes people, they don't feel confident or they haven't been in it long enough and they, you know, they need someone to reassure them or tell them you know, what's ideal. And so, again, I, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all for everybody. But I would say this, like if you are a person where real estate is your second or third career and you know, you're, let's say, 45 years of age or older, usually chances are you have a vast network of people already because you've established this network through life, right? It would seem logical that you would develop a plan for maybe business associations or peer associations or whatever you want to call it. So it's not your database. This is a secondary group of people that are maybe all, you know, influential people in their own lives. They have other careers and vocations that are maybe related to real estate or some, you know, it could be engineers, architects, lawyers, doctors, bankers, whatever. And so it's a, it's a group of professionals that you're going to develop a plan for. That obviously is a more obvious plan for someone like I described than somebody who's 24, never held down another job and is fresh out of university. They're not going to have that type of network more than likely. But that person might be more adept at jumping into a social media plan right away because they've only lived life with social media. They're probably already extremely comfortable with it. And the idea of getting in front of a camera and doing a TikTok or a video is already second nature. I think some of these things become fairly revealing if you just take a closer examination of the of the person in question. So you mentioned previously that that's one part of the business plan, though you really recommend not shifting as you go through the year. So is your suggestion then you kind of find the three that you think you maybe interest you and then just stick with them and really put the effort into them and then determine at the end of the year whether or not that worked or not and then shift versus shifting mid-year? Absolutely. And so when I say three, I mean, it's always a minimum of three. And the reason it's a minimum of three is like, even the most, like I've had years where, you know, I've got a database of 200 people. I'm used to driving a return of say on average 15 to 17%. So that would be, you know, 15 to 17 deals per 100 people. So I bank on getting let's say 30 transactions in a year, but you can have down markets, weird years, like keep in mind, there's like human beings in your database. And these things are predictable based on averages over an extended period of time, but one year might not be a great representation of an average. And so you can have a down year in a particular revenue stream. And it's not necessarily because you screwed something up. You have to make room for the highs and lows amongst the averages. When you average something over 10 years, you can say, okay, here's the average. But amongst the 10 years, there you got your highs and lows. So for that reason, if you only rely on one revenue stream and you're in a down year, that's pretty shitty. If you have three or four revenue streams, chances are you're going to get this nice flow of ups and downs amongst your various streams. And as one's maybe suffering, maybe the other one's doing well. So that's why I'd say, you know, have a minimum of three streams. What was the second part to your question there? 
Well, we just talked about whether or not you should shift them in the oh, middle of the year sorry. versus holding on yeah, to Yeah, that was it. So the shifting. No, I don't shift them. If you think through it, reflect, analyze, measure, build, implement, and manage properly in your planning, then I'm not shifting. I'm, I'm only shifting for like cataclysmic events, being Mark Zuckerberg has gone insane, decided to take over the world, and I'm no longer using <laughs> social media because it's an evil empire and whatever. Like, you know what I mean? Something insane has to happen for me to say, I'm not following through with my plan. Again, because I don't think you can start to get real accurate measurements of whether or not the plan's even working until well into the year, especially if it's new to you. Now, if you've been doing something for a long period of time, let's say you've been successfully running a neighborhood, neighborhood plan for a number of years, different conversation. If you get three months in, now you can have tighter analyzation windows because you've been doing this already and you know what the numbers should be. So if you go January, February, March, and all of a sudden there's a blip in the radar and you go, huh, I didn't get, normally I get four calls a month. Every six calls, I get an appointment, meaning that, you know, I should get two appointments over three months or whatever. I'm just spitting numbers out here. But if you get a drastic change in that three month window, it might mean that, okay, well, what did I send out? Maybe what I sent out, people didn't like. What did I do differently? You know, I'd look at the actual flyers that were hitting, what was the wording, what kind of audience was I going after? Was it a typical just listed or just sold? Or was it more of a marketing piece? And I would keep track of those types of things so that I can adjust for the future, trying to determine what are, what are the, what's getting me the best results with my deliveries. And that's in a neighborhood conversation, but you can do that with, you know, like sometimes if you go back to a business association, I think lunches and coffees, you know, face-to-face drives far better uh, responses than, you know, emails and, and mailers. And so, you know, that would be something that you measure. Obviously we've been restricted with face-to-face meetings over the last couple of years here, but those are the types of things that I pay attention to. So is it relatively fair to say that you, it doesn't happen very often where you get to the end of the year, start planning for the following year and you just drop a revenue stream and just go, nope, that wasn't for me. Oh no, I will. So I'll drop a revenue stream hundred percent, but I'm not dropping it in May. I'm dropping it in October or November because now I've given it the year. And if I'm dropping it, it's because I'm going, Hey, you know what? That's not for me. I'm not incorporating that into next year's plan. An example of that, and sometimes that that can be related to the fact that maybe it wasn't just the right thing for you. Maybe you didn't enjoy it. Maybe it's market related. And and a perfect example of that is foreclosures. Anybody who's been in the business less than seven or eight years, the concept of foreclosures is, is foreign to them. But, you know, you see the odd one. But there was a time from 2009 to 2014 where it was not unusual to see in each marketplace, whether you're anywhere in the Fraser Valley, whether you're talking Mission or Surrey or Langley, like in each neighborhood, you could see handfuls of foreclosures. So I had a, one of my revenue streams in those years was foreclosure business. I had established relationships with banks and lenders. And if I sold 50 homes in a year, sometimes up to 10 or 12 of those sales were foreclosures where I was listing them for the bank or the lender. So it's a crazy revenue stream, right? But obviously, there comes a time where you can't do that anymore because that's not an opportunity. And it hasn't been an opportunity since about 2015. So 2014 was the last time I had foreclosures as a revenue stream in my business plan. 
So let's skip forward now. You've picked your revenue streams. You've kind of got the ideas of what you're going to do going forward. And I'm going to use neighborhood farming just because we've talked about it a number of times. But where, how are you planning your year out now? How are you going? This is where it goes into my calendar. I'm I, in this particular case, I'm planning a mailer, which would be different depending on your revenue stream. But are you doing this all at the beginning of the year, or is this something that you're doing as the year progresses that you're planning this out? I do. So this is the way I've done it. And it has a little bit to do with just my personality and where I like to have to worry about work and when I don't want to have to worry about it. But I will typically, for all of my revenue streams, I'll plan everything up through into the summer. Because what happens is, so you get into the new year, you got to have everything planned no matter what. Like, I don't care who you are, you have to plan at least your first quarter. And I would even suggest that even quarter two. Because for a lot of things you're doing, like whether it's social media, you got to have a plan for, okay, so I'm going to do X amount of posts uh, a week or a month. And some of those are going to be, like I really love my brother-in-law, Jesse Peters, his analysis that he uses of, you know, when when you are thinking about content curation for your feeds, you got to think of yourself like a little bit like a sitcom or you're a TV show. And TV shows, 80% of the content roughly is the show and 20% is advertisement. So the advertisement elements is the easy part, right? The advertisement for yourself, for your own show that you're creating online is you're just listed, you're just sold. It's the stuff that doesn't require a lot of thought. It's the real estate related stuff. It's the other 80% that takes a lot of thought and planning. You got to create this content. You got to be, hey, what kind of what kind of person, what's going to be my personality online? What kind of things am I going to talk about? You'll see agents you know, David Corey's a great example where, you know, he's come up with this thing where he does, I can't remember the name of it, but he, he reviews different restaurants in right. the area, right? Like, this is his thing. Whatever you're going to do online, it takes a lot of thought, a lot of planning. There's the shooting of it. There's the editing of it. You know, like, this is stuff that, that is, you know, it's, it's exhaustive, right? And so to think that you're going to do that last minute is not going to happen. So with all that in mind, using that as an example... I'll plan everything out in the calendar all the way through the end of August. And whether that's social media or, you know, neighborhood or whatever. And then the reason I do that is because springtime tends to be so busy with making sales that I don't want to be having to think, wanting to think about anything extra. And then by the time you get through spring, you want to have a bit of a break, you know, you probably got some vacations planned or whatever. And then I'm using part of my summer when I'm not on vacation to plan out the rest of my year beyond August. And that's my September, October, November, December plan. I kind of have an idea what I'm going to do, but I'm fine tuning, you know, maybe coming up with the pieces, the content, like whatever it is that I'm doing, planning, you know, whatever, it's a Christmas gift, or maybe it's a client party or whatever. But that's the time, those are the two times that I'm allowing myself the space to do that is in my business planning in November. And then at some point in time in the summer before fall, after I've had a mental break and some rest. Okay, so this is going to be a little bit of a difficult one to get into or figure out how you answer. I'm going to sort of use the neighborhood farming thing again, just because we've talked about it. And uh, you mentioned that you don't, it's not something you should review typically at March. You should be waiting until much further on. You've got the data, you can figure it out. The question that came up though is, should you expect growth at a one-to-one ratio, which means We eventually figure out that if I do X amount of mailers, I'm going to get X amount of deals. And I've over time just figured that out. But should you always expect that that's always going to result? It's always going to be 
that if I did 400 mailers and got 10 listings, that if I did 800 mailers, I'm going to get 20. Should you always expect that? Or how do you, how do you plan to go bigger if you want to go bigger without slightly getting a little bit underwater Mm -hmm. with what you're putting on top Mm -hmm. of you? Yeah. So there's a bit of an economy of scale question there. I would say I want to answer that differently depending on the revenue stream. If we talk about, let's take another stream we haven't mentioned, like a great one that makes sense for a lot of people is, I don't know what to call, I'll call it like child associations. So oftentimes people will turn their kids' sports teams and those relationships into a revenue stream, right? Just imagine kids playing hockey, basketball, volleyball, whatever. In those streams, I uh, I feel like the more you put in, the more you get out, no question. And there's this like direct, easy, measurable ratio. Like, you know, if you are going to become the team manager and you're going to organize more team events and you're just going to do more, 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 you're in front of people more, you're talking to them more, there's going to be, um, you know, there's going to be a return on that. And it's almost... I don't think you could do so much as you stop seeing an increased return. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, you're not capable of doing too much in that environment. But if you take it to a neighborhood conversation and say, okay, I'm farming 500 houses and I'm getting X return. And now if I go to 1,000 or 1,500, I think that's the spirit of the question there. I would say that that's variable and I'm very hesitant to... I've told people when I've taught neighborhood stuff for years that I'm really hesitant for people to go bigger. And there's a few reasons for that. So first of all, if you just establish and say, on average, many neighborhoods will experience roughly 5% turnover uh, in a year. So if you've got a neighborhood of 500 homes, on average, you're going to see 25 homes come up for sale. Now, in our current environment, the numbers are all inflated and way higher. And we've seen numbers as high as 10%. But on average... Over many, many years, 5% is a very realistic number. You got to remember, like if you're doing a neighborhood, every time you do a piece or send something out, there's a cost to that. And so it becomes this like conversation of, okay, do I want to keep things smaller and more affordable and try to increase my market share on a smaller number, or do I want to go bigger And as I go bigger, I don't have to have as much market share because there's more houses and more opportunity in the conversation. You can make an argument for both, but you just have to understand that going bigger is a higher cost. And so I've always been a proponent of saying, I don't think anybody should try to, if you start at 500 or roughly 500, I would say to anybody, well, work to get, don't even think about expanding until you've gotten to a minimum of 10% market share. And if you've shown, because it doesn't take anything to get anything less. Like if you've only got five or six or 7% market share, it, to me, you're not doing anything well. You're just doing the bare minimum and you, you know, you're, you're not doing a good job at anything. You start to get beyond 10% into 15 and 20%. I mean, there's people that have even had, I've seen agents who've had 30%. I've never attained that myself. I've gotten as high as 25 Train yourself and, and challenge yourself to gain market share. Now, if you've gained market share and you've gotten to 15, 20%, and at that time you want to go and start doing 1,000, 2,000 homes, well, you're going to have the capital to do it because you're already driving a ton of revenue from that neighborhood because of the market share you've gained. But if you just right away start to go to 1,000, 1,500 homes, I can tell you from personal experience, that's expensive. 
And if you don't get immediate return, you're more likely to stop because it's very painful cutting checks every month to send pieces out if you're not making money off of it. Whereas if you're doing it for a smaller number of homes, it's more sustainable to go for a very long dry period, which is realistic if you're just starting to farm a neighborhood. You can't expect to see immediate results because nobody knows who you are yet. So I think the spirit of the question was, it was this one-to-one ratio that I think you asked. The per, I, think, I think an individual is trying to say, you know, if I make 50 calls and I can expect X return on 50 calls, could I just expect that to double and triple with 150 or 100 to 150? So let's just use our real life example. Like, I mean, people do lead generation in our office, you know, and we could have, we could get Chris on the, on the, on the phone and, you know, and, and have this conversation with him. But I would say that no, like the short answer is no, you can't just say, well, you know, if I get five from 50, do I get 10 from 100? Anytime you're talking about averages, they're averages over infinity. And so we know that with lead gen, as an example, I think industry averages are roughly, I want to say, two to 3% is what I believe is the current average. So you make 100 calls and you get two to three clients out of 100 calls. That's over measuring millions and over a vast expanse of different skill levels of agents. There are agents who get below 2 and 3% returns, and there's agents who are well above 2 and 3% returns. So I would say this, if you make 50 calls and then 100 calls and then 500 calls, hopefully your ratio actually gets better the more calls you do because you get better. And if you get better, hopefully you can be above industry average in whatever you're doing. So your neighbor, going back to the neighborhood, sorry, one more thing, going back to the neighborhood, like, you know, I think maybe I'm repeating myself a bit, but the temptation is always, I'll, I'll reference a conversation with Dave Bawa. I had this exact convo with him about six months ago. He, him and I sat down, we talked about neighborhood and his first inclination was to go like 1500 or something like that. And I, I mean, I was very adamant that he goes smaller because you know, you got to assume that when you start something, you're, you're not going to be great at it. I mean, I don't want to say you're going to suck at it, but you're not going to be as good at it as you are going to be three years from now or 18 months from now. So why not start small and work at becoming better at it before you try to do a lot of something? Because chances are, no matter what you do, there's going to be a little bit of wasted dollars and effort at the beginning because you're trying to figure it out. And then as you hone your craft, if you can show through your results that you're getting better, now talk about expanding because you have some idea of what you're doing. Yeah, I think with neighborhood farming too, you spoke about this at the Surrey training we did as well. I think one thing people tend to forget is it's not a one and done. You're not doing up a one-time flyer, collecting your listings, and then just doing it again. It's a it's over a long yeah. term. To Wouldn't actually... it be nice if that's what it was? <laughs> I mean, it, right. it's like, you know, even with me all these years later doing one neighborhood for a long, long time, I can go months without a solid return. And then all of a sudden you can get like three or four listing appointments in two weeks because you never know. Like I had one scenario happen, which was amazing to me. About, I want to say, yeah, it was maybe a year and a half, two years ago, I sold a home, which was, a, it was a beautiful home in this neighborhood. It was worth a lot of money. Like, it was great. It was an awesome place to sell. When I got a call to go to this place, I walked in and they, on the table, when I'm meeting with these people, 
they had a flyer on the table that had dropped at their doorstep nearly two years before that moment that I was sitting there. And in that time, there had been more flyers that dropped, but they kept that one because that one, when they looked at it, they said, that reminds us of our home. When we sell, we're going to call this agent. So you like, you don't know the impact you're having, right? And so just because you don't get a call three weeks later, four weeks later, doesn't mean that something's not working. You have to give it, in some cases, two years. That's an extreme example, but that just goes to show like, you know, longevity is the key, uh, particularly with neighborhood marketing. Longevity is really significant. So we talked about uh, mostly when I asked you if you take your previous business plans into when you're planning for the next year and, and, you know, you've got data to analyze and look at. One of the questions that came up is somebody who's maybe new to the business, but also maybe just new to business planning. Maybe it's just not something they've done before. They've not really taken the time to do it. Maybe they don't have a ton of data to analyze from the previous year or information. Mm -hmm. What's, what's the goal for getting started? What are you sort of referencing or, or should you just be super, super realistic? Or what, what would you say to somebody who's just going to start getting into business planning for 2022? Yeah. So, I mean, we've got, first of all, we've got some within our office. I mean, we have some training plans, like we have programs for, for our people that are brand new, you know, you're plugged in with Cameron and Natalie, you're doing the things that we think you should be doing that I would say supersede uh, I, I like, you know, the conversations that we're having in business planning here, while they need to do a business plan, I don't want to derail them from what we've got going on. Because no question, it is an entirely different conversation when you're a brand new agent versus, you know, you've been in the business for even one year. There are some things that you need to learn, like the basics of how to do, you know, how to work with some of the programs, you know, that, that are fundamental and need to be learned first. Now, you know, and then we also run people through um, some Buffini stuff as well as they get a little bit later on into their, you know, their new or young career. Now, that said, do you still make a business plan? 100%. Does it maybe look a touch different? Sure. It's important not to, I think this business can be overwhelming, you know, particularly in our office, you're instantly, the, the pro and the con is you're surrounded by really, really high producing people which is awesome because growth through osmosis happens, but it can also be very intimidating because you're watching agents crank out between 25 and 80 transactions and it just seems daunting. But what I would say is this, you're going to have a database, so you're going to make a database plan. Your database might be 25 or 30 people like I mentioned, it doesn't matter. You still develop a database plan with exactly the same fundamentals that I would develop my database base plan with. And the really nice thing is that a plan for 30 people is way more manageable than a plan for 280 people. So that's done. And then, you know, like I said earlier in the conversation, when you're looking at the other streams, people would ask, well, what should I do? And I would say, well, what jumps out at you? And so same thing for somebody brand new, maybe something that jumps out at you is going to be different than something that jumps out at me because of where we're at in our career. Also in our business planning session, there was a um, one of the graphs I showed people was a cost and time analysis of each revenue stream. So every revenue stream costs a certain amount of money and a certain amount of time. 
and some cost very little money and a lot of time and vice versa. So if you're a newer agent, you're going to gravitate to those types of streams because you have time, but you don't have money. And so an example of that is clearly, you know, open houses. I know open houses have been restricted in the last year and a half, but open houses, that's a prime example of something that costs no money, takes time, and you got lots of that. You know, floor duty, which, you know, I know it's not a, a, a sexy, uh, it's not a sexy revenue stream, but we get a lot of leads. We get a duty. ton of leads. And there's a lot of people who have stories of doing a lot of transactions by taking a lot of time out of their life to sit on floor duty for three or four hours or whatever it is. And it costs you nothing. So that could be a revenue stream. And then you can have business associations or professional associations, right? Just because you're new in real estate doesn't mean you don't have other connections. And you could have a plan for those other associations that, again, cost relatively no money, take some time, and you have time to put out there. So I would not be leaning towards something like mass marketing or neighborhood marketing right off the get-go. I, I know that you know social media is something that it, it seems as though everybody needs to do it. So, you know, would I be, you know, talking about, would I be prominent on social media if I was brand new? Sure. But would I be spending a pile of money on it? No, I would just be displaying my personality and being myself on my feeds and building a foundation for maybe down the road, I'm going to get more, you know, complex in my, with my social media and spend a bit more money. I would be looking, yeah, to do things that, that require time and not so much money. With, uh, with somebody who's new and maybe just getting into it, is the, would the business plan be more focused than around those activities versus the goals and maybe less focused on how, you know, it would be hard for someone new to go, I want X amount of deals. 100%. You, you can't, so, I mean, I can tell you, I mean, this is one of the, the benefits of being in a brokerage like ours is that, you know, through osmosis, you're going to just, you're going to get stuff done. So I, like, if anyone says, well, how do I know what I'm going to do? Well, if you can build a plan that we approve of along the lines of what we just discussed. I can tell you generically, we're going to help you sell minimum 10, 12 houses and maybe up to 18 houses in year one. Now, do we have data from last year where we can use to come up with that? No, but I can just tell you that it's really hard to exist in this environment and not do that, being surrounded by the people you're surrounded by. So that's what you're going to use. And so, but, but for the newer agent, I don't want to look at results as much as I want to look at activities. If you're an agent who's been in the business for nine years and you got lots of history and we got stuff that we can measure, we'll talk more about results because we know that we can tweak our activities to create different results. And so then, you know, it makes more sense to say, well, I want to go from 32 transactions to 41 transactions. Fine. But if you only did, even if you're a second year agent and you did seven transactions last year, or 10 transactions, let's say. Well, sure, okay, you know, do we want to write down a number? Yeah, we want to write down a number, but I'm actually more focused on activities than I am those numbers at that stage of someone's career. I actually really like this one. People that are struggling with communicating with the database, you talk a lot about the database and the, the importance of it. I think there's, a, I, I mean, I'm just guessing. I would imagine there's a lot of people who haven't actually taken that step into really focusing on the database and, and communicating with them. So if your database is not used to you regularly communicating and you're not reaching out and, and which, I mean, even in the conversations you've had with a lot of our agents, they'll say, I kind of let that one slip. I didn't do it as well as I mm -hmm. should. I've been trying to pick it up. 
what's the what's the direction for that person to now try and get into feeling comfortable reaching out to their clients who haven't really heard from from that agent on a regular basis yeah it's because we're transactional and we're not relational and it's and it's part of that is an admission of the fact that your actions have shown that you've only cared about the commissions <laughs> and and people will say oh it's not true i love my clients it's like really well if you didn't talk to them after you got your commission and it's been 2 years and you're worried about they're going to think it's weird because all of a sudden you're now in contact with them i'll tell you yeah it is weird it's it's weird because you're changing the way you're thinking about the relationship and i can say that i went through the exact same challenge when i shifted my thinking you know roughly 2009 2010 i was really worried that when i started to communicate with these people on a regular basis number 1 some of them weren't going to like it some of them probably actually had transactions where they didn't really like me at the end and now all of a sudden i'm talking to them uh, because my mindset was like well you got what you needed i got what i needed and we're done stop bugging me like quite literally that's that's what it was mm -hmm. um so what happens is this is a beautiful thing the more we are ourselves the more we will identify our tribe and so I found the courage and the guts to be me and my communication with my clients. And that meant really being me. So I, the initial, the initial conversation, so what, practically speaking, what happened at that time, remember this was, you know, we still use snail mail back then. Uh, I, I sent out, you know, a letter and then there was probably an email follow-up and then people started getting regular communication. And even some of that early regular communication I sent out. I didn't apologize, but I did say in some form or another, I said something like, I've shifted the way I think about my business and you can expect this type of communication from me moving forward from now on. And this is the beautiful thing of what happened. There was a small group of people that probably didn't like me after their transaction anyway, and they unsubscribed or you know, metaphorically flip me the bird and they were out. Beautiful. Awesome. Now I know they're out of that list. There were some other people that just felt uncomfortable having this kind of ongoing relationship with an agent. Keep in mind that that's not the agent they encountered when they worked with me. It was a very transactional relationship. You know, we might have met each other through circumstances that I, that I never wanted to meet someone through again. So then when I started to talk to them in a more relational way, they also dusted off. And then what I ended up being left with was this group of people who liked the new Andrew, liked the new form of communication, and were probably starving for a much more relational relationship in the first place. And now I was, in fact, giving it to them. And again, like everything else we've talked about, this didn't happen in one month. This happened over a period of about a year. And I will say, in that first year, I started in January. Uh, the thing that kind of capped it all off was when I got to the end of the year and everybody got their first Christmas present, which, you know, I began doing all those years ago. And when this beautiful gift landed at their door that was wrapped and, you know, clearly had value to it and was thoughtful, that was the beginning of people coming to an understanding of what this new relationship was going to be like moving forward. And then for anybody new, in my database. I mean, that's the only person they ever encountered. Highly relational, not transactional at all, cares deeply about the people. And so 
it just it becomes more natural from there. But absolutely feels incredibly unnatural when you first start. So it should because you haven't been doing anything like that. So your suggestion to somebody though is just rip off the bandaid, just do it. Absolutely. Best thing that ever happens is you rip off the bandaid. You just you don't have to send out any kind of apology, but obviously people are going to get the vibe in the early communication and and you just stick with it and people that don't like it, they're going to dust off. And that's great. Those that's not your that's not your tribe. That's not who you want. And people who love it are going to tell you they love it and you're going to see it in the way they respond to you and and like it's only a matter of time until that style of relating to clients, I can tell you, it's not just me that would say this, ask anyone who's done this over the years, the return on investment that you get is mind blowing. It's worth whatever the pain of the bandaid coming off is in the first few months. It's incredible the return that you get over, over the years. As someone who's listened to every single one of our podcasts, because I edit them, every single person that's ever mentioned to you that they're, they shifted or they maintain that relationship based relationship with their clients has been extremely happy that they did. I don't think we've actually spoken to somebody who was the alt- who, who who doesn't, who is just strictly transactional, been happy to do it and it's worked. Well, like the people no one would ever tell you. I don't think anyone would say to you, I think database is stupid. I would never do it. Like even the people who are transactional, they don't know they are right? A lot, you'll, you'll hear agents say all the time, like, oh, I, I, most of my business is repeat and referral. It's like, referral it's, only, it's hilarious only, when yeah. you hear that because it's like, <laughs> that's complete bullshit. Like, you know, and it's not that there's a million ways to do this business. You don't have to do it that way. It's just that, you know, and even within, you know, I'll use Larry Siebert as an extreme example. I'm not as extreme as Larry. Larry is literally only repeat and referral. To the point where if he gets a call from a total random stranger or a sign call, his guard is up and he doesn't even want to talk to the person. Now, Larry's in a position in life where he can afford to do that and good, good for Larry. I'm not that extreme, but what, the point of what I was saying is that if we were to just take 20 random agents off the street and give them no background on this convo and just say, hey what kind of business do you do? I bet you 19 out of 20 say, oh, I'm all database. When in fact, if you look at their activities and their plans, if they have them and the way they communicate, I'll bet you it's the flip opposite. I'll bet you it's like maybe one or two out of 10 actually run their database plan in this way, where what I would say is highly relational and not transactional. What that means is that your communication with your people is not just tied to a transaction. Everybody communicates to their clients when they will tell you they want to buy and sell and move. Great, a monkey can do that. What are you doing in all of the months and years in between each client's transaction? When are they hearing from you? How often? How are they hearing from you? What's the context of the conversation? Are you bringing value to their life? You know, generic mailers, that's only the beginning of what, like, if you're doing that, great, but it can go way beyond generic mailers. It can be personal written stuff. It can be videos. It can be client parties. It can be Christmas gifts. It can be anniversaries of marriages, birthdays, anniversaries of moving dates. Like, you know, there's no limit to what you can do. And all I can say is the more you pour into your people in an authentic way, the more they give back to you. And Larry's a great example. 
David Corey's an incredible example. Uh, and, you know, Tom O'Hara and Steve Cooner have done a great job. There. Like, there's lots of people in our, in our brokerage who do a tremendous example of that. Um, Kirk Dirksen, Matt Tinsley, like, there's just, there's lots of people who do a great job. Not everybody's plan is the same, but it's the difference between, you know, a transactional relationship versus a relationship that goes on well beyond uh, any transaction. All right, we got just a couple couple little questions and, and uh, topics here left, but this one I really like that I'm asking you this, which is for somebody who's decided social media <laughs> is their sort of, you know, one of their ways, which I think probably is 90% of agents have to, whether you're, whether you're young or old, I think a lot of them have figured that's a, 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 an easy way to reach people. But for people who maybe are uncomfortable in front of a camera, uh, struggle to come up with content, which is everybody, What's your sort of advice or, or ways to overcome this? Which I love asking you because you hated social media. Oh, I never. Not that long I never, ago. You probably still do, but. Well, no. Okay. So yeah, no, I am. I, I hated it. Here's why I hated it. I hated it because there's some ego tied to this. It, well, yeah, we'll call it ego. It also just, I hated the idea of having to add something new because I was already busy. Right? Like I started my career long before social media existed. And so I'm fortunate in that I had a beautiful, big foundation of business so that when social media came along, I didn't need it. I didn't have to. Now, that's, I mean, there's a lot of people who adopted it and they would look at me and laugh at me and say, you're a moron, you should have done it, whatever. And they're probably, maybe they're not wrong to some degree. But the reason I hated it is because. Man, when it came out, I just remember it was in your face 24-7. Like, you know, if you weren't doing it, you were a moron. And for somebody who didn't naturally incorporate it into my life, like I didn't go ahead and get Facebook. I didn't go and get Twitter. I didn't like I didn't have it in my personal life. So then it was work to have to incorporate it because I didn't even have any of those accounts. I wasn't even comfortable with how they, they worked. And I didn't relate with my friends and peers through those mediums already. So for that reason, I hated it. Cause it's like, it's a pain in my ass. It's like another thing I got to do. And I'm already busy and tired and pissed off that I got too much to do. So I don't want to do it. Um, but, oh wow, my hair looks amazing in this video. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> I just looked at that. That's incredible. I took my hat off there. Luckily, I know, and then you luckily, it up. Luckily, you nobody did sees this. <laughs> that won't oh, be the screenshot. That's amazing. We use. I got no tooth, and my hair is all over the place. Um, amazing, yeah. So the the sorry, I just lost my train of thought. I hated the social media. Yeah, ego was a piece of it because I didn't like that people were telling me that I needed to do something because my ego was like, well, I've already arrived, asshole. I'm already good at this. Don't tell me that I need to, you know, whatever. So there was that. But yeah, so then you know, a number of years ago, I I buy into the brokerage and then you know you start to see things from a from a an owner perspective and i just like whatever just i started to i needed to adopt it from a brokerage perspective and i also realized like well you know i was in this fortunate position of being able to say i don't need social media because i've been in the business long enough that i didn't like you're not going to look at whatever John Corey or Stan Weeb and tell them that they need to get a Twitter feed in order to survive in real estate. Like it's fake news, right? But there's a lot of people not in that position who are newer in their careers. And the reality was, is if I was starting real estate today or any time in the last six or seven years, there's no friggin' way I would not 
figure out and learn social media because for me it, for that is equivalent to me starting in 2003 saying I refuse to do open houses or I refuse to door knock or I refuse to follow up on these leads that this other guy doesn't want like there are things that are just like fundamental to being successful and now learning to grapple with social media and develop a presence on social media is that fundamental to uh, succeeding in real estate. So for people that are obviously going to, you know, hopefully try to make it more of a thing in 2022, but don't like how they look, don't like how they hear, struggle to enjoy what they make, which is very few that actually like how you look, how you sound. What, what do you say to them though? How, what's the, what's the way to overcome this? I mean, first of all, be wary of the person who does love how they look and sound yeah, on social media, because <laughs> like you, I mean, that is, that is next level. I mean, we all think we're fat and ugly. I, 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 I don't know. Yeah. So you just, that's something where, I mean, you just get over it, right? The more you do it, the more you realize, uh, just don't watch your own stuff. Don't watch your own stuff. Yeah. Like how many times do you and I do something and then I tell, I've told you, I'm like, oh my gosh, like I, I hate the way I did right. that or whatever. It's and pretty you, natural. And you're going like, no, that's good, man. People like it. And I'm like, really? Because I want to punch myself in the face. Like I just, I, whatever, but we're our own worst critics and you got to just, I think over time you, you get over that piece of it. I think actually it's been good. Uh, I think some people might even tell you that learning to accept themselves in front of a camera is actually been really healthy for them. I've heard people sure. say that, you know, we have a lot of stuff that we all battle through. And if you can learn to love yourself, then um, chances are, you know, people already feel that way about you. So if it's good, if you start to feel that way about yourself. I think it's another Band-Aid. You just got to hit the record button. Yeah. And then and suck it up. And the beauty is right now you could you, the nice thing is you could focus on stuff like stories, things that aren't going to stick around while you learn it. You know, st do that stuff that's gone in 24 hours. Mm hmm. But I do think you're going to have to figure it out. And and like I, this sounds so like cheesy and like typical because you hear this all the time. But be yourself. Like it is so obvious. We've all know this, right? We all go through our feeds and we watch stuff. Like when somebody is truly being them, it's really endearing. Whether that person looks like a supermodel or not, or nails it perfectly, or stumbles over words, when they're being them. I don't care. Like, I love watching that stuff. Right. And, and so, but if you're trying to be perfect, it really comes through that you're trying to be perfect. And that's the stuff that, that I think people just, you know, swipe past. Yeah. I think, I think people should check your brother, brother-in-law out just because his videos, you can just see happiness. Like there's an, he, he really enjoys what he's doing in that moment. He, you know, totally like when he started, like he got into real estate long after I did, right? So like I had the, here's this, my brother-in-law in, he was a sales guy, I think honestly for like Yellow Pages or something like that. He calls me up one day and I knew this guy, right? I knew this guy in a totally different context. He goes, I'm getting into real estate, get my license, getting into real estate. And in my head, it was like, okay, cue the eye roll, like shit. Now I got to deal with this guy in my, you know, he's, he's walking into my territory kind of thing, right? But I, I, that sounds negative. I mean, I was happy for him. So he gets into it and then, but then he becomes this over the top character mm -hmm. online, right? Which is, you know, and, and I can't say that I loved it when it started because 
I looked at it and I'm like, what is it? Like, this is new, right? This is now it's common to see people like this online. It's common to see them taking on these personas, but this was new. And I looked at it and I was like, oh my gosh, what is this? However, I quickly changed my tune because the, th the thing is, is that everything he was doing was exactly the way he is whenever you see him. Like it wasn't a show. He's, he's crazy and he's up and down and highly emotional, but that is the guy. That's the way he is. Like if I'm with him on a Saturday afternoon, that's who he is. So for that reason, I find it endearing uh, because it's not, it's not an act in any way. All right. Last thing. This is not really much of a, a topic or conversation, but people have asked, I actually heard people asking about this at the Surrey training, but you have, you have spreadsheets that you showed in the training. They were based on revenue. There were lots of numbers. People have just asked if those will be available in some form or another for them to, I don't know, use, peruse, copy. Yeah. So, so I feel like we, so first of all, hundred percent, I mean, people can have whatever they want. I, I thought that we offered those to everybody, but the caveat was, is that, so the, the stuff that I have, so it was number one, it was on the PowerPoint, which was in the, in the presentation, which can be taken out of there. But if they wanted the actual document, I think I told everyone they can have it. I can send them the file, but I use an Excel document. So the caveat was like, if you don't know how to use Excel, then it's not going to mean anything to you because it's a program that I created a number of years ago with the help of somebody else. And, you know, if anyone knows Excel, like it's not like a Word document where it's just you can jump into it if you don't know what you're doing and figure it out. Excel is a little bit more complicated. That was the caveat. But 100 uh, percent, we can make that available Maybe we'll link. I don't know if we could link it to no, this. We'll put it in wants and haves. We'll put it. We'll put it in wants and haves. And and but I know what's going to happen is I, I didn't want to just put it there because we put it there. Anyone who doesn't know Excel, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to be like, "Well, how do I do this?" And that's why I didn't want to do that because my thing that I use it is quite complex. It's a little bit, I would say, more sophisticated. You do not need something like that. You do not like. <laughs> It's you can make up your own way to you know measure your your sales and transactions. I mean, for years, I friggin wrote it out. Like I had it in a. I used a journal and I wrote stuff out in a journal. Um, you can also use whatever program you're comfortable with. If that's Word, or many of you might have some type of thing within your CRM that you know can track sales and and whatever. So it doesn't really matter how you do it. I just wanted to show people what I did, but we could certainly make that available for anybody that, that wants it. Just don't call me up and ask me how, how to use it, how to use it, because I'm not even a master at Excel. And, you know, I have my assistant fill that out for me. So <laughs> I'm maybe, not, maybe if it's at least available for people to see, it gives them an idea of yeah, where to start. To totally. And, and yeah, absolutely. So it'll, it'll be available. Perfect. We'll put that on once and have say, hey, look, this was good. We went through quite a bit. We covered, uh, well, a lot of what people are asking. So yeah. thanks. Thanks for I, taking some time. I hope uh I hope that is useful for everybody and I hope everybody's uh new year is off to the start that they want Starting it to be. Starting off well, yeah. hopefully. Yeah. Seeing family, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, we're uh who knows when we're recording this and uh and when this goes out, I guess there's you know, we got yeah, life may be different. <laughs> yeah, we got you know, we got the uh, what do they call it? The Decepticon? Is it Decepticons now? They're naming these variants after? Decept I don't even know where we're Decept at now. <laughs> Who knows? No idea. Who knows? Yeah. 
anyway, hopefully, uh, yeah, hopefully everybody has a good uh, new year, 2022 strong. And uh, if, I guess if they got questions too, they can reach out on the wants and haves. Mm-hmm. Totally. It's yeah. a good spot. So yeah. Okay, Sweet, man. Well, thanks for doing it. Thanks. Take care. Have a good one. Yeah, bye.